funny. Um, now, I, I prayed a lot about this. I'll be honest with you. This, this word is it's kind of weighing heavily upon me this morning. Um, have you ever felt like because of the fact that you're a Christian that all of the odds are stacked against you? Almost like the whole world is against you because you're a Christian. And in reality, it is. For every born-again, Bible-believing Christian, there's 10,000 heathens. Amen? 10,000 of them. And sometimes it seems like all of them have their guns pointed at you. It just seems like the odds are stacked against us. If you're attempting to be a Bible-believing Christian in an ever-increasing godless society, then the odds, brothers and sisters, are not in your favor. They are not. Well, sometimes I just feel like the whole world is gunning for me. The whole world is gunning for the Christian people, the people of God, because America is becoming more and more godless and less and less Christian. It really is, as much as I hate to admit that. You know, if you're a church-attending evangelical Christian this morning, then you're flat out in the minority. That's just how it is. If you're a Bible-believing, born-again, blood-bought Christian, you are part of an extreme minority of people. All the odds are stacked against you. All the odds are in favor that you're going to fail. That this church is going to fail. That your marriage is going to fail. That it's all going to fail because all the odds are on the world's side. Well, what kind of a fool do I look like this morning? I, about a year and a half ago when I came on to this job full time to help pastor and help minister at a church, I'm coming from the pharmaceutical field, the number one business in the world. They have all the money in the world. What kind of a fool am I to sign on and say, yeah, I'll help pastor a church. I looked it up, six, over 6,000 churches fail a year in the United States. They collapse, they shut their doors because no one's coming anymore. Well, all the odds are stacked against us. They're all stacked against us. The whole world is against Christians. Well, the chances are high. Listen to me now. The chances are high that your kids will leave the faith. They will. That they'll get to a certain age and they'll throw in the towel. Chances are high that your marriage doesn't last. It does not make it. Just how it is. Chances are very high that one day you say, I'm not going to church anymore. Very high. Okay, now, I don't want to come off as depressing, everyone. I know I probably have you half depressed already. I don't want to discourage you, but we need to be honest with ourselves this morning. I have some statistics that I would like to go over with you. Now, they're not very good t statistics, but before I do, I want to tell you about statistics. I've taken classes on statistics. I've studied them. I've generated them. Statistics do not care whether you believe in the Bible or not. Statistics do not care if you worship the Lord or not, or if you're a Christian or not. Statistics just give you data. They show you what is. We can study t statistics 
and they can show us trends in society. They can show us patterns in society. Data can be used to measure certain metrics in our society. It can give us percentages, okay? So I'm not too worried about your feelings being hurt by statistics because they just are. It's what the numbers are, okay? Now hang on for, for a minute and bear with me as I go through a bit of negativity. Okay, so here's my statistics. Number one, this is from the Barna Group. They do lots of stats. In Pew Research, they also do lots of stats as well. Listen to me. Two-thirds, roughly 66%, Two-thirds of all American churches are experiencing either A, no growth, or B, a decline in numbers. That is most, the majority of churches in this nation are either stagnant, not growing, or they're going the wrong way. In other words, less and less people are coming to the house of God. 66%, the majority of people are not coming to church anymore. Listen to this one. This one bothers me real bad. More than 2 million Americans have left the church every year for the past 7 years. So go back 7 years ago, 2 million per year. That's 14 million people in America have said, I'm done, not going anymore. That's a large percentage of America. What is there, 320-some million people in this nation? 14 million of them, out of all the millions that don't go in the first place, 14 million more in the past seven years have said, eh, I'm done. I quit. Not going. Don't need it. Not for me. Listen, 65% of all churches, and that's the majority again, 65% of all churches in America have less than 100 people in their congregations, including all their children. So, in other words, the majority of all the churches in America are very small, tiny little blips on the map, have less than 100 people. You go around and travel to some of There's churches everywhere in this nation. Half of them are closed, and the other half of them are doing poorly. Like I said, I, I, don't, I don't care if your feelings are... This is just what is. Now, do you know what this statistic means? Do you know what these stats mean? It means that there's a high probability of you saying, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm not coming back. We, we can't argue with the facts. M most churches are doing poorly these days. There is a high chance that you are going to say, I'm not going back anymore. i got better things to do on Sunday mornings. Well, I, I pull out of my road onto Route 40 every day when I come to work or wherever I go. And the only day I barely have to look both ways is Sunday morning when I'm on my way to church. Saturday morning, i got to wait a minute for people to clear up. Monday morning, Tuesday morning, it's all the same. i got to wait for people to get out of the way so I can pull out and join traffic. But Sunday morning, I can almost just blow right through the stop sign because there ain't any traffic at all. There is a high probability that you'll quit coming to church someday. 
You know what this means? It means, and we can't argue with that, you are most likely to quit church someday. Well, I'll tell you what, the odds are not in your favor that you will continue to come to church for the rest of your life. My second set of data points. Now, this is from the Barna Group, and this is also from Georgetown University. Listen, 70% of all young people who grow up in church leave the church by their 20s. 70% 70% out of them. If we had a 10-sided die this morning, and, and we took a young child, maybe one of my own sons even, and we said this roll of the die represents whether my son will continue to come to church or not, 7 out of 10 chances are he's going to say, eh, that Christianity's not for me, I'm done, by the time he hits 20 years old. The odds are not in my favor that my sons will continue into faith. And I got two of them, so I have to roll that dice twice. Seven out of ten. And they get into their 20s, they leave. Listen, 31% of all young adults who have grown up in church have left the church because, quote, it was boring. That's a third of our young adults. A third of them who were raised in church say, eh, it's boring. More than half of all young people ages 18 to 24 don't believe the Bible is God's inspired word. More than half of them. Listen, 24 of 25 millennials do not have a biblical worldview. That, that God created the world, man sinned, death came into the world because of sin, Jesus came, died for us, gave us a chance that we could be reconciled to God, and he's coming back to gather his people and we'll stand before God and be judged. Most millennials do not have that worldview. If you don't believe that, just get out there and watch what's going on in this world. It's unbelievable what's going on. I probably watch more YouTube than I should, but there is some unbelievable things that go on on these college campuses. It's unbelievable. But do you know what these statistics mean? It means that most likely your kids will leave the Christian faith. That's what it means. Statistically speaking, there is a high probability that your children will say, Christianity's not for me. The Bible's not for me. I have a different worldview. I don't believe it's the inspired word of God. And I'm leaving. It's boring. This is what the numbers tell us. This is what the trends are saying. Where the, the researchers are saying, hey, this is alarming more and more. We're seeing this trend happen in the United States. It means that most likely your kids are going to quit coming to church. Odds are not in your children's favor. Much as I hate to admit that, that's the truth. Those are the odds. Seven out of ten when they get into their 20s. Brothers and sisters, the odds are stacked against you. They are stacked against you. That you're going to quit church and that your kids are going to quit church. All these odds are stacked against us. Listen, my third set of data. I'll try to keep plowing through this. As I notice from the silence, 
Not many hallelujahs or amens. This came from a law firm out of California, a website I got this from. Listen, there is one divorce every 13 seconds in America. One every 13 seconds. How many have happened just in the time that I've been preaching for these few minutes? By the time it takes a newlywed couple to say their vows to each other, roughly a couple minutes, nine divorces take place. America has about 2.5 million divorces per year. Listen, over a 40-year span, 67% of first marriages end in divorce. Now, it's slightly down since the 1980s when it skyrocketed, but the only reason that divorce is down now is because people aren't getting married. They're just living together. Do you know what this means? It means there's a high probability that your marriage is going to fail. Again, if we took the dice and we rolled them, almost 7 out of 10, your marriage is going to fail. It's going to fail. The odds, if you had to roll the dice for your marriage, the odds are not in your favor. They are not in your favor. It means there's a high probability of divorce. The odds are stacked against your marriage. They are. All these big things are looking down on you. Here you are trying to be a Christian in an ever-increasingly godless society. If all the odds are stacked against you, they are not in your favor. There's a, more of a probability that you will fail than there are that you will succeed and you'll continue serving the Lord. The Bible says, He who endures until the end shall be saved. But the statistics say, you aren't going to endure till the end. You ain't going to make it. Your family's not going to make it. Your children aren't going to make it. Your church isn't going to make it. It's all stacked against us. Oh, then. That, that, that just weighs on me. You know, if a, the, the pastor's heart inside of me, here I am gung-ho to try to make new hope grow. But statistically speaking, it ain't going to go that way. We'll be lucky to keep our doors open in the next 10 or 20 years. Let alone grow. Everything is saying, hey, you ain't going to grow. It's going to go the opposite way. What kind of fool am I? You know, I wish people were lined up to come to church. I wish we had to get chairs from the fellowship hall and bring them over. I wish there was a line outside the door waiting for when someone comes to unlock it in the morning. I wish that were the way it was. I wish we could go back to the 50s, the last golden era of America, where there was a mom and a dad and the children, and they all got cleaned up on Sunday mornings, and they came to the house of God. Kind of like a leave it to beaver family or something like that. I wish we could go back to that era. But brothers and sisters, those days are gone. You'd be lucky in the average household nowadays to not have two dads raising the children. Or two moms. But back then, people loved America. People did good to their neighbors. Wouldn't that be great to go back to that? To the 50s, it'd be great. 
But those days are long over. When the average person feared God. Nowadays, people don't even know what God you're talking about if you talk about God. Who are you talking about, Zeus? Those days are long over. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And you tell me the Bible's not prophetic when it describes this generation. 2 Timothy 3, 1 says this, Know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, meaning lack of self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. That's what we live in today. It ain't the day of the 50s anymore where people are cruising around in the classic cars. Those days are long gone. This is what we got now. This is what we have running around in our nation. People no longer show any restraint whatsoever. Throw themselves at whatever pleasure you want. Live for today. Forget about tomorrow. There is no God. That's what we deal with today. There's people out in this world that would rob you, kill you, rape you, and murder you, and it never even crossed their mind that it could be wicked or evil. Could the Bible have called it any better? These words were written thousands of years ago. Jesus talks about a time when they will deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Man, them days aren't too far off. I don't like to get political when I preach, but at minimum, President Trump is pro-religion. I will give him that. He is pro-religion. What's going to happen to a person like me when someone that's not President Trump gets put in office? You watch any of those Democratic debates and hear the things that, that they believe and that they stand for? It's scared what's going to happen to me. They're going to deliver someone like me up and kill me and smile and celebrate when I'm dead. Maybe I should have stayed in pharmaceuticals. These statistics that I read to you, they weigh on me. They vex me because they are true. It is what is. Everywhere you turn, you see godlessness in this nation. It's discouraging, isn't it, to hear statistics that churches are going this way instead of this way. That families are going this way. That marriages are going this way. It's discouraging. It's like a big giant burden on my back. I want good things to happen here at this ministry. I want to throw myself at this ministry and see it flourish. But the statistics are saying, hey, you're wasting your time, pal. Ain't going to happen. People have deprioritized church to be so far down on the list. I feel like I'm fighting a losing battle. More and more people drift away from Christianity, and it is discouraging. If you have any discernment at all, you have to be able to see this. The last 50, 60, 70 years in our nation, you have to be able to see this spiritual decay in our nation. If you have any discernment, you've got to be able to see it. More and more people are quitting. The whole world is stacked against you. 
you are apart. Listen to me. If you believe this is God's Word, and you stand on it, and you believe it, and you read it, and you live by it, you are a tiny majority. Few find it. And even out of those few, more and more are jumping ship, saying, eh, that's it for me. You know what I believe, though? I believe that the Bible prepares us for those odds. The Bible prepares us for the, all of the odds being stacked against us. The Bible prepares us for when all the guns are pointed at us. When it's 10,000 verses 1, the Bible prepares us for those statistics. For all the statistics I just read you, the Bible gives us examples for us to read and be encouraged by. Listen to this. We have the word that we can turn to, and it just so happens I want to look at a couple examples this morning. In your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter and 2 Peter are excellent books. If you get some time, I suggest you read and study them sometime this week. Peter has an awesome perspective. Peter was an eyewitness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them examples to those that after should live ungodly. Verse 7 says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Listen, for the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Brothers and sisters, when we're feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling vexed, when we look at these statistics and see that all the bazookas are pointed at us, are pointed at your marriage, are pointed at your children, they're pointed at church attendance and churches, we have this to look at. The Bible gives us two examples in 2 Peter chapter 2. It gives us an example with Noah, the preacher of righteousness, the Bible calls him. And then it gives us an example of Lot, Lot the righteous, the Bible calls him. It says, look back on these two people. So let's look at our first example, Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, and it's talking about Noah and the, the flood in those days. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Skip down to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Do you notice some of the descriptive characteristics that the Lord uses in this Genesis chapter 6? It says, Evil continually, filled with violence, corrupt. That's what the world was back then, completely evil. 
continually, men's thoughts were twisted and warped and godless. That's how it was in Noah's day. Completely corrupt. Completely given over to whatever fleshly desires they wanted. Filled with violence. Raping and killing. That's what their society was back in these days. Complete abandonment of law and of the laws of God. And then there was Noah. And then there was Noah. You ever thought about, I wonder what Noah's perspective was back then. wonder if he started scratching his beard thinking, what in the world's going on? wonder if Noah said, doesn't everyone, anyone see the law of God that we have here? Don't you know we're going to stand before God? Everyone around Noah was wicked. Everyone. There was only one righteous family. Only one. I don't know how many people they estimate back then in the hundreds of thousands or whatever it was that was on the earth back then. It wasn't like it was now. There's not billions back then. But if there were millions back then, all of them were wicked except for Noah. Noah in a land of complete godlessness. I wonder if Noah was discouraged like I am this morning. I wonder if Noah's like, geez, I think I'm the only one that believes in God. I'm the only one that believes in His law. Think about it. The Bible says Noah was righteous. Listen, Genesis 6 verse 8 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. The only one! God's scanning the whole earth and there ain't anyone righteous except for Noah. There was one righteous family on the whole earth. Talk about the odds being stacked against you. Wonder what the church statistics were back then. A decrease of 99.9% in church attendance. 99.9999% of kids leave the faith. 99.999% of people quit coming to church. Talk about being a minority. He was the only one. He had all the statistics against him, all the odds against him. He was the only one leading his family in the laws of God. He was the only man seeking God. He was the only one that wasn't raping, murdering, and thieving. Everyone else was except Noah. And God found grace, or Noah was found in God's good graces. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Look, look what God calls Noah. It says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God calls Noah righteous. Brothers and sisters, whatever is going around in our godless society, whatever everyone else is doing, here we see that Noah was saying, man, everybody's murdering and killing and raping and thieving. But Noah said, this is what I know. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to continue with it. And God saw Noah. God called him righteous. God delivers Noah and says, come, you bring your family. Noah, the eighth person, delivered from destruction by the hand of God. All the odds were stacked against Noah. But God saw. God's eyes looked and saw all the evil continually except one man, Noah. He clung to what he believed. 
He held on to it. He held fast to it. Even though the odds were all against him, his marriage and his children, he hung on till the end and was saved. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. Who'd he preach to? They were all killers and murderers and thieves. Imagine the discouragement Noah must have had trying to preach righteousness in everyone. No one wanted to hear it. No one. At least at New Hope, we have a few hundred people that want to hear still. Noah had no one. Maybe the only people he preached to were his family. They were the only ones that would listen. But God saved him. God spared him. Irregardless of all the evil that surrounded Noah, God saved him and his family. Brothers and sisters, irregardless of the statistics, irregardless of what the data, irregardless of the trends, all the metrics, what they say about you, your family, the chances, God knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. Listen. Every statistic in Noah's time pointed towards him failing. But when you add God into the equation, things change. God revels in being the minority. He seems to, what I read in the Bible, rarely, if ever, has the majority. He uses the minority all the time from what I read. Elijah. Remember him? He stood against just him. One versus 450 prophets of Baal. One versus 450. Those odds don't look very good. He's going to be destroyed. But God is added into the equation. He calls down fire. Consumes his offering. Look at Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just a handful of people stood against the entire Babylonian empire. Against the king that could have snuffed his life out. Someone could have shot him, killed him, murdered. Just those few people stood against the entire Babylonian army. The entire Babylonian nation. The biggest nation the world had seen back then. God deals with the minority. God does not need the majority. Well, I believe that God is searching For a man or a woman who's faithful, who will not quit, who does not care what the world's trends are, what the world says is good or you need to do. God is looking for that man. God is looking for that woman, even teenager, who says, this is what I believe. This is what I'm going to live. I don't care what the rest of the world says. God's eyes are going to land on you if that's you. God doesn't need statistics. God doesn't need data. He'll accomplish whatever He wants, when He wants. New Hope, listen, you're called to faithfulness. You're called to hold on even if the statistics go to 99.999% of people quit Christianity. You're still called to hold on. You are. Let's quickly now, I know it's getting late, let's go to our second example. We'll look at Sodom and Gomorrah now. Second Peter gives us those two examples. Now, God is talking with Abraham, okay, in this next passage in Genesis chapter 18. 
verse 20. God is talking with Abraham, and he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, Genesis 18, verse 20 says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. Sodom and Gomorrah was a nasty, wretched city. Those places were completely perverted. Okay, uh, two men. God sends two angels down and, and he tells Abraham what he's going to do. And Abraham tries to plead with the angels and plead with the Lord. No, don't do it. Don't destroy it. Because Lot lives there and the, the two angels, they go. God sends them on a mission. He's sending them to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah. Go check into this. See if all this is true, that they're completely filthy and corrupt. So these angels go, and they go to Lot's house. Lot takes them in and closes his gate. Listen to Genesis chapter 19, verse 4 says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people, from every quarter. So everyone gathers around Lot's house. They saw these two men go into Lot's. These two angelic looking men go to Lot's house. And it says men, young and old, from all over the city come to Lot's house. And they called unto Lot and said, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, I'm only going to read that to you in the King James Version. I'm not going to read it to you in the other version, because more or less what they're saying is these men are completely sexually immoral, is more or less. They're saying, hey, give us these men. We want to do these perverted acts with them. And it says the whole city came and was pounding on Lot's door to try to get these men to do these perverse things with them. That's how sexually immoral Sodom and Gomorrah was. That's how given over to lust and whatever evil imagination they could come with, they wanted to try it and do it. That's the type of city that it was. Genesis, skip down to Genesis 19, 13 says, For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxed great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. That's how utterly wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was. Completely warped. Completely perverted. Perverse entire city. I wonder how Lot felt. The Bible says Lot was righteous. The Bible calls Lot righteous. There he is, this one man, one family, in living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Complete filth. Homosexuality and... You name it, it was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then here's Lot. I wonder if he felt kind of like Noah did. What in the world's going on here? He was the only one. Matter of fact, if you read Abraham and the Lord go back and forth, and the Lord saying, Abraham says, for 50, will you spare that city for 50? Abraham was trying to stand in the gap for those people. And the Lord says, okay, for 50. And Abraham dares to get God, go all the way down to 10. If there's 10 people, will you spare the city? And God agrees to it. And they can't find 10 righteous people. They fail to find 10 righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not even 10. Lot was the only one. The only one left 
reading his word. The only one left praying and making supplications to the Lord. The only one left doing Bible studies with his family. The only one. All of the odds were stacked against him. All of them. I wonder how Lot felt. Matter of fact, we, the Bible tells us how Lot felt. The Bible says that Lot was vexed. Meaning this giant big burden was on his back and he would look at his city and think, what in the world are these people thinking? What are they doing? He was vexed. It bothered him. It distressed him. That the city that he lived in was so perverse. Righteous Lot. So the angels are there to destroy it. Sodom and Gomorrah completely immoral and perverse in the eyes of God. One righteous family. That second Peter tells us that Lot was vexed. It weighed on him. We talk about the odds being against you. And I can uh, ask the band to make their way back. We'll, we'll read Genesis chapter 19, verse 15, as they get prepared. It said, And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of this city. And while he lingered, the angels grabbed hold of him, and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass that when they had brought them abroad, that he said, Escape for your life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountains, lest thou be consumed." God's eyes looked all over Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were completely perverse, except Lot and his family. There was one versus thousands. But God delivered Lot, delivered him and his family, delivered him out of that perverse nation, perverse city. Do hope if I can say anything to you this morning. Hang in there. Hang in there. Don't let this go. Don't let it drift away. Don't do it. Hold on to the Lord. Keep serving Him. The Bible tells us to fight the good fight of faith. It is a fight. It is a struggle. There are tendencies inside of us that say, I just don't want to go to church this morning. I'd rather just sleep in. I worked hard this week. I'd just rather take... Those tendencies are in every last one of us. We're flesh, aren't we? But the Bible says to fight the good fight of faith. We're called to faithfulness. Keep serving Him. Ignore the statistics. We know that the statistics are bad. When have they ever really been good? When have they ever really been in God's favor? Never. But God's going to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. Why? Because the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation.